Welcome to a special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And each day this week, we are bringing you live coverage from the 76th United Nations General Assembly. The annual opening of the UN General Assembly is always one of the most important weeks on the diplomatic calendar, and this year, the podcast has partnered with the United Nations Foundation to provide listeners with daily news and expert analysis to give you the context you need to understand what is driving the diplomatic agenda at the United Nations during this key week. We are recording today's episode live at 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Thursday, September 23rd. Earlier this morning, the Security Council held a special meeting dedicated to climate security. The meeting was convened by Ireland, which holds the rotating presidency of the Security Council, and featured the participation of prime ministers and foreign ministers, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. In advance of this meeting, I spoke with Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations, Geraldine Biernason, who explained why Ireland called this meeting and what they seek to achieve. We will listen to that conversation later in the show and bring back Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group, who is joining us live and will offer some commentary and analysis about this unique meeting of the Security Council. But first, we are joined by Dr. Jemima Juki, Director for Africa at the International Food Policy Research Institute. She has been participating in an all-day, much-anticipating Food Systems Summit convened by the Secretary General. Uh, welcome, Dr. Juki. Thank you so much for having me, Mac. Uh, so this Food Systems Summit is one of the major meetings of this year's UN General Assembly. Uh, before we discuss what happened today, can you briefly offer a little bit of background as to why this kind of meeting was convened in the first place? Um, thank you, Mac. Um, so in 2019, um, the UN Secretary General called for a Food Systems Summit. And he did this in recognition of the fact that the world is basically not on track to meet the sustainable development goals, including the goal on zero hunger. And so the reason why we have been convening today is because we know we need to accelerate progress uh, in this last decade before um, the deadline for the SDGs. And we know COVID-19 has actually made the situation on food security worse. Um, about 800 million people um, were hungry um, in 2020. And this has been a huge jump from those that were hungry in 2019. So we know we have a lot to do in terms of feeding the world. We know our food systems have not been functioning as they were intended to function. We know they have not been uh, feeding the world. We know that they are, they are exceeding or have a potential to exceed our planetary boundaries. And so we need to fix them so that they deliver nutritious foods for everyone, so that they do not leave anyone behind 
kind and so that we eliminate the number of man, um, people suffering from malnutrition those that are hungry those ha that have overnutrition so we do have a triple uh, burden of nutrition of malnutrition uh, to address and so it's been great to have world leaders stakeholders producers consumers private sector civil society really come together and see how we can accelerate progress towards zero hunger so uh i know this day is like a marathon uh, it goes on yeah. for hours and you are uh, graciously uh, taking some time out of the meeting to speak with us uh have there been any sort of key announcements or, or key moments so far today that you would cite as being particularly impactful uh, towards the ends that, that you just articulated? Um, so several things that have happened today that have been really profound. And one of them has been to see heads of state and heads of government really come to the table with commitments, very clear commitments, statements and intents of action in terms of the national food systems transformation pathways with clear priorities of what they really want to address between now and 2030 in order to achieve their SDGs. So that has been very, very profound. We've seen governments like the US government come to the table with a commitment of 10 billion US dollars to do this. And even for governments that haven't come uh, you know, with financial commitments, they have come with commitment of, you know, we want to end um, uh, child uh, undernutrition. We want to invest 10%, you know, African government saying we are upping our commitment to investing in agriculture by 10% of our public expenditure, uh, expenditure budgets. Um, but also profoundly is we've seen stakeholder groups also come together, you know, young people mobilizing with a pledge to actually support food systems and having a very clear voice that we are not the leaders of tomorrow, we are the mm. leaders of today. We have to be part of transforming um, our food systems. But also very important has been um, then the, the, the Secretary General's own opening statement saying um, that you know, he's rallying the world that this is this is a major effort that they're going to focus on between now and, and 2030 and basically saying we cannot achieve there the sustainable development goals if we do not transform our food systems. That transforming our food systems is actually at the center of achieving the rest of the sustainable development goals. So that has been a very profound statement from the Secretary General. Yeah, you know, having covered the United Nations for so long, it always strikes me that one of like the big outcomes of meetings like this is that it, you know, it serves as like a forcing mechanism. It's mm. it's the date by which um, prime ministers, governments, heads of state, and civil society groups need to kind of come to the table, which at mm. with with either political commitments or financial commitments. And oftentimes uh, I have seen like new coalitions emerge, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, new groups emerge or announce that they're forming. Is there any sort of new initiative to come from this or new coalition that you're, you're particularly interested in? 
Um, so there's actually several co coalitions that have been announced um, today. Um, I and, figured. And, I've, 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 yes. I've followed this for so long. I figured. It's like always and, coalition and the, announcing it, things like this. And actually the yeah. momentum for this has been growing over the last uh, mm. 12 months. So different stakeholder mm. groups and different governments have already been coming together to say, what are the key priorities that we need to form coalitions mm. around? So we have a coalition for zero hunger you know, uh, that brings together governments, private sector, civil society organizations, producers, saying how do we actually accelerate production and distribution of food to ensure that all those that need food have access to it. There is a coalition on reducing waste. Yeah, the food is not waste because we know our biggest challenge is not that we are not producing enough food, but the fact that a lot of the food that is produced, that's using land, that's using energy to produce, about a third of that is being lost. Hmm. So there is a coalition of um, around reducing um, the, the waste and loss of food. There's a coalition on school meals. We cannot educate children if they're hungry. So there's a whole coalition that's forming, or that has formed, mm. around expanding uh, school meals, uh, school meals program. And because we know that childhood malnutrition has a whole impact on children for the rest of their for the rest of their lives, there's a coalition on decent jobs. Yeah, that those who are working in food systems should have decent jobs, should make a decent living wage. One of the things I see is that the hungriest people are in our rural areas, and especially in Africa, that the people who produce our food are also the hungriest because they cannot make a decent living wage out of agriculture and out of their, their production. So that's another whole coalition that's forming. Personally, I'm leading a coalition on making food systems work for women and girls because we know that women are playing critical roles in our food systems, but usually without the resources that they need to do this in a meaningful way that benefits them and that empowers them. So we also need a coalition that's really making sure that women and girls are centered to our food systems transformation efforts. Uh, well, it sounds like a profoundly impactful day at yes. the United Nations and, and a, a really, you know, the, there was a lot of anticipation coming into this meeting. It sounds like it is it is meeting uh, the moment. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Juki. I know I'm going to let you go back to uh, hours of meetings. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Mac. Okay, big thank you to uh, Dr. Juki. Uh, and switching gears, at 8 a.m. this morning, the Security Council, at Ireland's request, convened a special meeting on climate security. Ahead of this meeting, I spoke with Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations, Geraldine Birnason. Let's listen in on that conversation now. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you very much. Pleased to be with you. So, Ambassador, I would like to kick off just by noting uh, how fortuitous it is that Ireland should hold the monthly rotating presidency of the Security Council in the month of September when presidents and prime ministers and other dignitaries all descend on New York. Uh, I am curious to learn, why is it that you chose climate security as the topic upon which to host a Security Council meeting during UN High Level Week? And how would you define climate security? 
Well, fortuitous is a good way of putting it, Mark. Indeed, it's 20 years ago since Ireland was in the chair of the Security Council. Indeed, uh, at the time of 9-11 in October, uh, we took on the chair. So this time, uh, we are looking forward to next week having our Prime Minister chair a high-level discussion on climate and security. You asked me why. Frankly, uh, we have approached our Security Council membership, but also this month in particular, um, as a forward-looking responsibility and obligation. Uh, we, we want to deal, of course, with the important current issues that are on our agenda, of which there are all too many uh, crisis situations. But we also want to be very mindful of the, the challenges that we have currently and the emerging ones that are now coming clearly into view. I think that the, the, the designers, the drafters of the charter, they were ambitious and they were, of course, uh, uh, visionaries in their own way. But I don't think there's any way that they could have contemplated uh, that the uh, inhabitants of this planet would indeed create a climate that challenged the future the existence of the planet, nor indeed would they ever have envisioned, I think, by extension, the, the impact that such a climate uh, crisis could have on peace and security. So we want to use our presidency and the Taoiseach sitting in the chair next week to have the council understand and to, to hear, to make a case at the council table for paying attention to something that is really emerging as an existential challenge for humanity, but also as an issue that the, the UN has to deal with. We have to face up to this major crisis. Um, the UN is going to be dealing with climate action, climate challenges for decades to come. We feel the Security Council needs to look at its own responsibility in that respect. Well, and, may I ask, you know, like from, I, but, uh, yeah. how is it that you would you know, define climate security as a topic under the purview of the Security Council? Well, frankly, you know, it's something that the, the Council itself needs to work more on. We know that uh, climate itself is a driver, climate change is a driver and a multiplier of conflict. We have ample evidence of that. This morning in the Security Council, for example, I chaired a meeting discussing some uh, the last few days we've seen really challenging situations on the ground in Somalia. Somalia is one example of a country that is hugely climate challenged with alternating drought and floods. There, the multiplier of, uh, of that instability the ability of climate change to actually undermine stability, we see it's very varied. We know that in some other areas of the world, uh, like, uh, for example, in the Pacific Islands, we've seen uh, the rising sea levels challenge individual islands. But we also know that encroaching deserts, moving people, huge hordes of people moving on the African continent in countries from Mali to the awful impact we've seen of climate, for example, in the Lake Chad Basin, it creates an instability. It undermines uh, efforts that governments make, whether it's from uh, a security point of view or indeed to address poverty and development issues. So we see a linkage. Do we understand the implications of all the linkages and how it directly affects globally uh, security because we're responsible for international peace and security. Of course, we don't right now. The Security Council has looked 
looked at this for some 15 years, but now we believe is the time for the Security Council to dig into the, the actual linkages that are on the table emerging case by case, region by region, varied and different, but the linkages are there. Well, to that end, do you foresee a specific outcome from Thursday's meeting or what are you expecting? Well, as I said at the beginning, what we want to do is that the Council registers its responsibility in this area. So by having such a high level discussion, and I should say the man that called uh, the climate crisis a code red for humanity, uh, Antonio Guterres, our Secretary General, will sit alongside my own Prime Minister as a marker of how serious this issue is. We'll have a lot of other high level political actors at the table. So the first thing we want to do by way of outcome is to say we're shining a light on these deep and substantive challenges for the international community and the very debate itself, I think, is a marker. Of course, what we would like to do is to see the Council actually register its voice afterwards, that the Council would take some actions. Uh, we're working on that. Usually council action expresses itself by way of a statement or a resolution. More work is needed in the coming days and weeks on that at the council table. And we are very actively involved in discussing with all our colleagues at the council table. And I would add, Mark, if I may, that this, even though we are discussing very much climate and security as it impacts the work of the Security Council, we know that behind those of us who are elected to the Security Security Council, of which we're proud to be one, Ireland, the weight of the General Assembly and its view that climate is the emerging challenge of the generation and of, for the UN very much informs what we're doing. So we know we will have the support of the General Assembly behind us in that work. So I take it from your answer that your ultimate goal is a Security Council resolution. What would you like to see included in such a resolution? Well, what we want to see, as I hinted at earlier, is that the Council come together, all members of the Council come together to deepen the understanding of the linkage that you asked me to explain. So we know that the views of some members of the Council are a little more questioning than others as to how globally applicable this is, and also institutionally, whether the Security Council has an exceptional role. We want to see climate action, of course, carried forward in the work of other parts of the UN. When it comes to the likely outcome at the Security Council, what we would want to see is that the, the UN itself is enabled in terms of its understanding of country-specific and region-specific challenges on climate. And also that we would see it expressed as we are already doing, this isn't new, in the mandates, for example, of peacekeeping operations or in the important mandates, as we do a seriatim here and there, um, of mandates of special representatives of the Secretary General. Uh, we want to see the Secretary General himself come back to the Security Council and explain to us where he is seeing the impact on fragility and on climate situations globally. So we, we want to basically reinforce the hand of the UN and of the Security Council in grappling with the very pragmatic and concrete challenges that we see, whether that's in Haiti or Myanmar, or where we see all of the 
over half of the biggest UN peacekeeping operations are in climate challenged areas. We mm. know it's a day to day challenge. We want to find a way to providing the UN with the instruments to address those day to day challenges. Uh, well, Ambassador or Madam President, I should say, uh, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Mark. Okay, big thank you to Ambassador Geraldine Byrne-Nason. I am now going to bring into the conversation Richard Gowan, UN Director for the International Crisis Group, who's been following uh, the Security Council meeting today. Hi, Richard. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be back on the show. Uh, so, Richard, I wanted to start our conversation where I left off with the ambassador around this question of getting an actual Security Council resolution on climate security. The Irish are clearly seeking a resolution. And during the meeting today, I heard Norway's foreign minister also endorse the idea, as well as Niger, among others. Yet last night, I was on a press call with a senior State Department official, and they wouldn't explicitly state that they are seeking a Security Council resolution on climate. And then I was listening to Secretary Blinken's remarks today, which I think did like a very good job of articulating both why the Security Council should focus on climate and how the United Nations can more I think systematically approached the climate security nexus. It was, I think, by and large, a very good speech, yet there was no explicit call for a Security Council resolution on the issue. Uh, what do you think explains the Biden administration's apparent reluctance here? Well, let's, let's put in a bit of the backstory, Mark. There has been a, uh, a sequence of draft Security Council resolutions on climate change floating around New York uh, for some time. Uh, Germany, which was on the council in 2019-2020, uh, led a process uh, of drafting a possible text. And that died because the Trump administration wouldn't buy it. Now, uh, Ireland, uh, Norway, Niger, others have been working on a new text. Um, which you know is circulating amongst diplomats. Uh, the goal was never to pass a resolution today. Um, the idea of today's meeting was to try and create some political momentum uh, to pass a resolution on climate security, probably in Niger's presidency of the council in December. The majority of council members support that. Uh, China, Russia, and India raised uh, questions about it today, though. And I think the U.S. is having to walk a careful line. Uh, the administration is not opposed to getting a resolution, but I think that the Americans would like this to be seen to be coming from smaller members of the council, especially from African members of the council like Kenya and Niger. Mm. And they don't want to turn it into a fight within the P5. Mm. Because if you have a situation where the U.S. is saying, we want this, and China and Russia are pushing back hard, it turns climate security into a just one more council game. Hmm. And the Americans don't want to, that to be the case. So like borrowing an insight that I uh, gleaned from reading your piece on the International Crisis Group's page, um, so if we don't want this to be, if the United States and, and does not want this to be a thing amongst the P5, then the other rotating 
council members become all the more diplomatically important. Uh, yet, starting January 1st, uh, there will be a new non-permanent member, Brazil, uh, which is not exactly on board with climate issues to the same extent that uh, the council member that's rotating out is. And again, I, mean, I stole this insight from you. Yep this this is a this is a a bit of a headache. I mean, to yeah. get any uh, any resolution through, you need nine votes. Well, right now, actually, there are probably twelve votes in the council in favor of a climate security resolution. Uh, China, Russia, and India being the the outliers. Um, but China, Russia, and India are not small countries, and um, I think it's especially vexatious for the. The Irish, the, the Indians, for example, are not supportive of this initiative. So they can't say that all the elected members of the council want it. Next year, if Brazil, you know, when Brazil is in the council too, um, if you have India and Brazil opposing this initiative, plus China and Russia, it, it's going to be harder to sort of you know, persuade the world that the council um, you know, really cares about climate security. So the next few months are, are pretty crucial. And the other reason the next few months are crucial is that Kenya has the presidency of the council next month. The Kenyans really care about climate security. They're very conscious of, of climate risks in the Horn of Africa. Uh, then Niger has the presidency in December, and Niger would love to land a resolution on this because it's also very aware of climate risks in its own neighborhood. So you know, there's a case for a big push now to get a resolution before the end of the year. But that will mean persuading China, Russia and India to at least abstain um, and not oppose the will of the council as a whole. Lastly, so did you hear anything today that suggests to you whether or not that will be possible that during Niger's presidency in December, this thing might might get a, a fair hearing and, and might pass one way or the other? Did you hear anything? I mean, the the Russians and Chinese uh, and indeed the Indians sounded pretty firm in their uh, opposition, um, which is a pity. But, you know, there is still a little bit of space, I think. I mean, the Chinese, for example, have said this is a complex issue. And there is a, sen there is a sense amongst council diplomats that if in the next few months, the Africans in particular can put a really strong empirical case on the table that there should be a resolution, that the Chinese may say, okay, you've, you've clarified the problem for us. It seems less complex now. We will abstain. And if China abstains, then, you know, the Russians may not want to veto something on climate change alone. And if China and Russia are willing to let this pass, then I don't think India will want to be left out in the cold on the issue. So there is a pathway, but after today, today it does feel like a difficult pathway, which we had expected. Uh, well, Richard, thank you so much for your time coming back on the show uh, and, and good luck the rest of UNGA. Well, I think when I was with you on, on Tuesday, I was in a suit. I'm now in a hoodie. We're all getting a little, <laughs> a little sloppier as the week goes on. It's inevitable. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. A big thank you to all our guests today. We will be back tomorrow with our final day of coverage from UNGA 76. One of the big events on Friday at the UN is a high-level meeting on energy convened by the Secretary General. We will bring you news and analysis from that meeting. 
You will also hear my conversation with the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Peter Maurer, about some key meetings on Afghanistan this week. And finally, the president and CEO of the United Nations Foundation, Elizabeth Cousins, will discuss some of her key takeaways from UNGA 76. Follow or subscribe to the podcast to get that episode as soon as it is published tomorrow. And before I let you go, I want to plug an excellent newsletter by Colm Lynch and Robbie Gramer of Foreign Policy Magazine. These are two of the best reporters in the business with deep experience covering the UN. Their daily emails have been really valuable to me this week, and I recommend you sign up for them as well. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. Special thanks to Rajesh Merchandani of the UN Foundation, to our production team at Revent. If you have a question for me, tips or comments, please connect with me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And uh, finally, do share this episode with any friends or colleagues uh, you think will have a professional interest in knowing what's going on at the UN this week. See you later. Bye.